Ideas on Institutions and Alternatives. I'm Lister Sinclair. Recently on Ideas, we presented a series based on the ideas of Chicago community organiser John McKnight called Community and Its Counterfeits. In this series, John McKnight claimed that society is composed of two distinct domains, an institutional domain governed by legal, contractual and administrative norms, in a word, bureaucracy, and a community domain, where citizens associate for their own purposes and people matter for themselves. John McKnight further claimed that these two domains, or they may occupy the same space, are of radically different kinds. Sound social policy, he suggested, would recognise and respect this difference and attempt to keep the two domains in balance, assigning each its proper functions. What happens instead, he went on, is that the integrity of the community domain is often entirely overlooked in the rush to treat perceived problems with institutional solutions. In the process, communities gradually lose the capacity and the confidence to do things like care, consolation, correction and counsel which institutions have taken over. And that, according to John McKnight, is more or less where we are today, with incompetent institutions trying to do more than they can or should and undermined communities doing less. With this programme, we begin a new series called Beyond Institutions, which continues the line of exploration begun in community and its counterfeits. It relates a series of experiments in the revival of community and the pruning of institutions. The first three hours are based on a book by David Schwartz called Crossing the River, in which he relates efforts to bring people with disabilities out of institutional isolation and into the community. In later programmes, you'll hear criminologist Jerry Miller on closing institutions. Lils Christie of the University of Oslo on his book Beyond Loneliness and Institutions. And sociologist Peter Berger on the importance of civil society. Beyond Institutions by David Cayley. In late 1983... David Schwartz became the director of the state of Pennsylvania's Developmental Disabilities Planning Council. Schwartz belonged to the generation of activists who had worked to get people with disabilities out of institutions and into more congenial community services, like group homes. But he had grown restive with the way in which community services had begun to mimic the very institutions they were intended to replace. Consequently, he took on his new job with a question taking shape in his mind. Would it be possible to transcend the boundaries of the service system altogether by asking ordinary citizens to become involved in the lives of people with disabilities? Under his leadership, the Council began making small grants to individuals and groups interested in this approach. Stories began filtering back, stories suggesting that with intelligence and determination, it was possible to revive and stimulate remarkable powers of hospitality within ordinary communities. The more this small-scale, personal approach was tried, the more it seemed to succeed. Nine years later, in 1992, David Schwartz summed up these experiences in a book called Crossing the River, 
creating a conceptual revolution in community and disability. The first three programs of this series are about the theory and practice of that revolution, as it has been carried out by David Schwartz and his colleagues in Pennsylvania. In the second and third hours, you'll meet two of its pioneers, women from small towns who are creating new social pathways by what they simply call asking. This first hour will trace the history of David Schwartz's gradual realization that the answer he was seeking lay beyond the walls of institutions and across the river. He told me the story during two days of conversation at his home in Harrisburg, where I was his guest in June of 1993. A robin sang outside the window as we talked. His chair, as you'll hear, creaked. The story begins in 1970, the year David Schwartz graduated from university, when he stopped in at the Willard Asylum for the Chronically Insane in upstate New York, a place that in its day had also been the expression of a conceptual revolution. He was looking for a job cutting the grass on the institution's stately lawns. The Willard Asylum was a world-famous asylum built in 1869 that was erected for the really dramatically new idea of humanitarian treatment for the chronically insane. So I walked into this old building and up these big stairs to the personnel office. It was just something out of an old movie about asylums. It, it was really like a stage set, but it was the real thing. And they, I filled out an application and they looked at me and realized that I was a college graduate and they said, boy, do we have a job for you. You're not going to cut any lawns. How would you like to be a rehabilitation counselor? And I thought to myself, what's that? And said, sure. David Schwartz remained at the Willard Asylum for the next five years, excepting one when he was at graduate school. During that time, he came to understand that the institution itself often had just as much influence on the behavior of the patients as their other afflictions. But he also discovered, within the institution, unexpected havens of sanity, a discovery he owed initially to an accident. Owen Trimarchi fell off a truck, and that really affected my destiny. You see, these state mental hospitals worked on patient labor, and in this case, the laundry had to be collected every day. And a guy, the, the drivers would go out, They'd go up to the, one of the patient buildings. They would lean on the horn, and a few patients, including Owen, would come up, and they didn't get in the cab, you know, and drive it. They got in the back, and they swung the laundry, big laundry bags up in the back. What happened was somehow something happened, and Owen fell off the back of the truck and fell down on the street and got hurt. This precipitated a kind of a scandal because there was a lot of pressure at that point about using patient labor, not for their therapeutic benefit, but to run the institution. So my boss, after this, walked down the hall and said, the order has come down from the administration to clean up patient labor and make it for their therapeutic benefit instead of for the institution. This is one of your new jobs. And I thought to myself, I was really uninterested in vocational stuff. It really seemed to be a, a really uninteresting kind of thing. Not exciting like psychotherapy. But I didn't have anything to say about it. It was my job. 
So I went out, and the first thing that I did was I had to go out and find where all of the people were working. And what I found was a whole completely different world than I knew had existed at this mental hospital. It was the world of the bakers and the bakery and the laundries and the people who drove the trucks and the people who cut the grass and the people who took the photographs and welded the pipes. The people you didn't see, the people you never heard about in the professional world. And I found that there were a lot of people, patients, who had little jobs where they were part of this, you could use Illich's term and say vernacular world that existed underneath the professional bureaucratic world of the hospital. It was a world that wasn't supposed to exist, but existed kind of through the looking glass. It was underneath everything. And I discovered that unlike the patients who were on the wards getting all this treatment, the patients who were working in these places seemed to be flourishing. The thing that they seemed to have was a sense of meaning, that they were somebody. And the people on the wards, their only identity was of mental patients and they had no control. So I started realizing that a thing to do would be when a new person was admitted to the hospital, and I, one of my jobs was to interview most of them. Something I would try to do is whisk them off the wards and into that underground world. For instance, I remember so clearly an elderly woman. She was in her 60s, I think, her family had grown up and left home and she'd always been a homemaker. She was severely depressed and I knew what was going to happen to her if she was on the ward. She was going to get large doses of antidepressant medication and if she didn't respond she was going to get shock therapy. And I remember saying to her, well did you ever have any kind of job you did before you got married? Oh yes, I was a, a secretary. Well maybe you'd be willing to help out at that again. Oh, and no, I'm sure that I, that was years ago. I'm no good at anything like that anymore. So I made this pitch to her. You know, the dentist down here, he really doesn't have enough staff. He really needs somebody to organize his files, his patient records. He's in a mess down there. If you'd just be willing to try out helping him, then it'd be really appreciated by him. And also, I could get you on, this, on payroll to pay you just a little bit for doing this part-time. Well, at length, she agreed that she would consider this. So at that point, I dropped everything, ran down to see my friend the dentist and say, Hey, Phil, you need some help down here. You really need some help down here. I can see. Place is a mess. I've got the woman for you. You really got to do this. Well, he agreed. Okay. He, he was a good guy. So I brought him together and introduced him. You know, come by a week later, and next thing I know, this woman is in there. She's got a place. She's joking around with the other secretary. She's basking under the attention of the dentist. She's off the ward. She's starting to feel like somebody. She's not getting the heavy drugs, and she's not getting the shock therapy because the treatment team is looking at her, and, you know, her depression was miraculously starting to lift, and so these treatment interventions weren't going to have to be done. So the long and the short of it was that I started to realize that if I could somehow grab people 
and find a match for them someplace. Some person, and you'd always think by meeting the person who was the patient, who would be the right person on the support staff who was the right personality for this person? And somebody who would be on the ward, you'd go, nah, where they need to be is cutting grass because you know that actually after a while they'd end up down in the cellar of the cider mill where all those guys went down in the afternoon to drink hard cider out of their barrel that they had down there and you know, it'd be part of that world. It'd just be Fred. And somebody else, uh, often adolescents, the photographer was really good with. One of the things that I found was that with the exception of the dentist, I never really found anybody on the professional staff who was really gifted at this kind of healing. They were all on the support staff and they'd gotten on the support staff and kind of took pride at staying far away from the patient world and the therapeutic world as far as they could. Nowadays, I think about that there was an institutional world and there was a sub-institutional world. And if you could take them into that sub-institutional vernacular world, they'd get better. During the time that David Schwartz worked at Willard, he encountered a teacher named Mark Gold, who ran workshops aimed at exploding conventional notions of mental retardation. Gold claimed that people with mental retardation often failed to learn not because they were innately incapable of it, but because of the powerful expectations set up by their label. And in his workshops, which he called Try Another Way, he would astonish his audiences by teaching a person unknown to him and alleged to be unteachable how to assemble a complex bicycle brake. One of David Schwartz's jobs at Willard was running a sheltered workshop for those thought incapable of real work. So he went to Toronto to see Mark Gold. It was an amazing thing because if you paid attention to what it was that he said, what it did was just completely destroy your, your image of what you thought this phenomenon of mental retardation was and what all of what you were supposed to be about. It was clearly wrong. It was as if someone said, oh, you don't believe there's such a thing as anti gravity? Well, let me show you. Here, I'll levitate three people. And you look at that and you go, by George? <laughs> there's nothing under those people. He did it. It was, it was an anomaly. It was an impossibility. It was something that everybody had a certainty couldn't be done. And he just took that certainty and would just wad it up and throw it in the waste paper can in front of your eyes. So once I saw that, I came back to the institution where I worked. And I tried it out myself to see whether it was him or whether he was really right. And I tried it out myself and I found it worked. He was right. He was really right. And it's an, an amazing thing. He really, in a lot of ways, started the revolution in getting people real jobs rather than having them work in sheltered workshops. Mark Gold's disconcerting demonstrations were part of a larger idea, which he called the competence deviance hypothesis. It suggested a way of counteracting the negative expectations set up by the sometimes unusual appearance of people with disabilities, and it had a powerful influence on David Schwartz. What Gold said was he said, think of the way that a person is perceived, both their positive and their negative aspects, as being like a teeter-totter, you know, like a seesaw. And on one side is the things that you could say are deviances. And on the other side are things that are positive things that uh, cause someone to be accepted in society. And that your judgment of 
who they are and how valued they are is really the sum total of the balance between those two things. And you can, you can if you want to help somebody, you can switch the balance. You can very seldom do anything about those things which are labeled as deviant. But if you can add things to the positive side, you can cause the seesaw to flip so that someone will perceive them in a different way. Now the story he used, as I recalled, is you're sitting over here around the corner at the diner and you're sitting there and some old guy comes in. He's got long greasy hair, his shoe, one shoe is untied, his shirt tail is out, you know, on the right side. He's, you know, got his, his last night's dinner on his shirt and you look over, he comes and sits down on a stool and, and you look at him and you go, some street person has come in here. And the uh, waitress comes up to him and says, uh, oh, good morning, Dr. Fishbein, and gives him a cup of coffee. And you go, what? And as the waitress comes by, you know, you know her, you say, who's that guy? And she goes, oh, that's old Dr. Fishbein. He's the emeritus professor of physics from the university, the Nobel Prize winner, you know. Well, immediate, your perception changes. Essentially, what happened is that the seesaw in your mind, gold say, flips. In other words, it was held down on the deviant side by all of these things about dress and appearance and stuff like that. There wasn't anything on the positive side. And now all of a sudden, somebody has dropped a 55-pound weight on the positive side. Nobel Prize winner. And immediately, your perception of this guy just totally becomes transformed. He's no longer a street person. He is this eminent, brilliant, absent-minded professor who just has kind of forgotten to tie his shoes. An interesting person to you, not a person who you would pass by on the street. Well, what Gold said was, don't worry about making people look normal. What you need to do is help them to do something which is perceived so positively in terms of their work that it will flip the seesaw, just like the old professor in the diner, and try to help build their strengths, their assets, rather than worrying about correcting their deficits, which is, in my field, what people did for many years, just trying to keep correcting something. Mark Gold's ideas reinforced what David Schwartz had already begun to learn at Willard, that the farther the patients got from the treatment wards of the institution, and the closer to the havens of ordinary existence within its walls, the better they became. In the end, he drew the unavoidable conclusion. In this big state mental hospital, you could see this, this truly crazy thing, that this place that was originally erected to help people to heal from mental disorders actually was a place that did a lot to make people crazy. And I realized slowly that there were very ref various reform efforts that took place. And I proposed my own, how you would reform this place to make it a decent place for people. And finally, it came to me that you couldn't reform this to be a decent place for people. There was simply no way that you could do it. The one thing that people needed from that state hospital was to get out of there. That's what they needed. 
right about that time was where this new idea was invented. It was a new experimental idea that you could start group homes. They called them hostels for people with mental retardation. The people with mental retardation did not have to live in comparable state institutions, but they could live in little group homes on an ordinary street, be part of their communities. And a parents group in the nearby city of Ithaca decided they really wanted to do this for their children. So I took the job as director to try to bring these people who had been sent away to institutions back into the community to take those folks who were young folks who were had always stayed out of institutions because now there was a right to education law and they'd been able to go to special education, but now what was going to happen to them? So that they could move out of their family home and they could have a home of their own. And the other thing that was possible to do is that this was a town like all towns in which there was no presence of people with mental retardation. When I was a child, with one exception, I never met someone with mental retardation. Now, that's not uncommon for somebody of my particular generation. Well, where were all of these people? Well, they were in state institutions, many of them. So the thing that we really needed to do was use this as a way of bringing these strangers back into the heart of real places. Two weeks ago, I went back to Ithaca. I go a couple of times a year. And I went back to Ithaca and I was walking down this commons, which is the main street of the closed main street of the town that's a commons. And in my short walk down the three blocks of this little main street, I met three people who we had gotten out of the state institutions and living in homes. And they were just there hanging out on the commons. How are you doing? They remembered me. I remembered them where they were living, what they were doing. They were really part of the town. They'd become part of the town. And that was the thing that the whole effort was really about. today are a regular and unremarkable feature of the social service landscape. But they began as an experiment. There were no precedents to say what they should be, and few established routines to limit what they could be. Boundaries between staff and clients were still fluid. David Schwartz recalls it as a very creative period. I remember very early in the first group home, the house mother, house parent, became ill. Now, people had been very demanding on her up to this point. And instantly, when she really became ill and needed to be taken care of, everybody stopped having problems. <laughs> all, all the people who had all these problems that needed to be attended to, they just stopped. And what they did was they started taking care of her and bringing her soup upstairs in her room and, you know, seeing if she was all right and being concerned and kind of taking care of the other people in the house who might have problems so that, you know, no problems would take place. As soon as she got well, then they all started having problems again. Now, when things are 
kind of disorderly in that way. What happened, it seemed to me, is that people flourished. They just flourished madly. Not only the people who were supposedly the ones there being served, but the staff who were there growing themselves. Everybody grew kind of wildly. Now, later on, when you have a little more money and you're better organized, and a group home staff member became sick, well, then you had a relief staff, and this person went to their house, and you sent the relief staff in. Everything was very orderly. There wasn't an opportunity for the people who lived there to rise up and take care of this problem. Everything became much more routinized. And what happened, I thought, was that the life really changed for the people with the label of mental retardation because they weren't part of an enterprise in which they had to contribute. It was all kind of managed and taken care of. That is what we had worked for, but that removed their opportunity, their greatest opportunity for growth, and also for the staff too. It's just as important for the staff to grow and develop as it is for the quote clients. So that what happened was that everything got much better managed, much better organized, much more stable, but I felt that the life was beginning to go out of it. And for me too, it wasn't as exciting for me, although my job was immensely easier than it had been in the beginning. I had escaped an institution and had unwittingly, with all good intentions, started to build another in the community service system. It was good, but it was starting to look a little bit like the place that I had left. The changes that David Schwartz was witnessing were not just taking place in the homes he knew in upstate New York. He participated in a state administrator's association and was also exposed to national organizations. And from this vantage, he could see that the tendency to reinstitutionalize was universal and, seemingly, inexorable. The worst of it, he felt, was a reestablishment of the boundaries between staff and clients. When they began, virtually every group home had live-in house parents. You know, this was part of the whole thing. It was like a little family. Now, as things developed and became more efficient, this became more difficult and labor laws intervened and all sorts of other things. So live-in staffing began to disappear and to replace like shift staffing by shift staffing. Shift staffing, let me add, just like at the state hospital. Now to me, this represents a radical transformation, a radical transformation in the whole enterprise because you're not living together anymore. There's a, again an emphasis on the difference between clients and staff who are served. Along with shift staffing and the discontinuities that created, went a steady increase in staff turnover. This had always been an acknowledged nuisance in human services, but the problem had remained in abeyance so long as group homes were thought of as quasi-communities rather than mini-institutions. Now that too began to change. I have a friend who I ran into at a bar up in New York State a couple of weeks ago, and he told me that he was working for a group home agency. And when he had gone in to get the job, the personnel director had said to him in describing the benefits, and if you are here after a year, you get the following benefits. 
But then he stopped and said, but you won't be. And then he laughed. In fact, this is a universally accepted thing now in this vast community service agency, which is people come and go. Let me say it more accurately. The staff come and go. The people with mental retardation stay. So what happens is you have a situation now in which vast numbers of staff are coming in, dancing in and out of people's lives. Staff turnover, in David Schwartz's view, manifests to the clients who they actually are. Like a school bell that causes everyone to instantly suspend a discussion in which, a moment before, they appeared passionately engaged, the revolving door through which staff endlessly came and went revealed the economic bones of the service economy in which group homes were inevitably located. Even when it was diligent and humane, care stopped at the bell, and the clients relearned what they had always known. People who we accepted, many of them, had never had a real home. I mean, some of these folks had been abandoned by their parents at birth for one reason or another, or had been institutionalized at birth, as doctors used to recommend, and had grown up with no families. And it was really not unusual. As a matter of fact, I, I think it was really quite the norm for these people to not have one single friend in the world. That everybody you were dealing with was paid to deal with you, and they were also changing. I mean, no matter how wonderful and nice they were, and I always have considered myself a compassionate professional. I'm not trying to denigrate professionals, but it only goes so far. But when you make a commitment to somebody, you really need to make a commitment, it seems to me, for folks who have been so wounded, so injured, who have never had security, who knew that no matter what they did, the next day, some decision might be made that they were going to be moved to someplace else, and they just didn't have anything to say about it. When we first started this place, I would say to each person when they arrived, this is your home for as long as you wish it to be. I thought it was very important to say that. And I noticed over the years that some of the people that we had just hung on with, even though they were just they strained your ability to the utmost, let's just put it this way. They were really inventive <laughs> at trying to figure out ways that you would wash your hands of them and throw them out. And boy, sometimes you really wish you could. But you said, no, we're not going to do this. I started noticing that after things developed, that some of these people who I had said this to, well, next time they had a, quote, behavioral episode, they'd be transferred to some behavioral program, and then maybe from there to some other program. And they entered the merry-go-round again, that they weren't there. I was wrong. I'd lied to them, not intentionally, when I had said, this is going to be your permanent home. I was no longer there to guarantee that it was so. One particular case which made David Schwartz aware that he might not be able to fulfill his first enthusiastic undertakings involved a woman called Joni Davis. She had lived since infancy in the state institution and then been welcomed to the group home in Ithaca with the same promise extended to all newcomers, that this would be her home for as long as she wanted. She was a person who, she was little. Oh, I think, boy, if she was five feet, I'd be surprised. Walked very stiffly, 
had this terrible skin condition that made her skin very, very flaky, uh, kind of fish scale. And because she was an African-American, that showed up even more clearly than it would have on, on a different skin. So her first, the first appearance that you were greeted by was one of, boy, you know, people react to skin conditions. It's one of the things that people, it's, it's, it's toughest to integrate somebody who has a skin condition because a lot of people really react to it immediately as if it's infectious or terrible. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. But it looked bad. But she had the biggest smile and the warmest personality and just the most upbeat, wonderful woman. And she had spent years and years in the most notorious state institution for people with mental retardation. When she came with us, we took her in and she stayed with us, etc. And as far as I knew, she was going to be fine. She moved to a, an apartment that she shared with somebody else. She joined the church. Years later, I heard that her kidneys started to fail. Now normally, of course, if you or I were in the terrible situation of needing to have dialysis, what would happen is that we would commute to some the nearest dialysis clinic, no matter how far away it was, probably. But what happened with this woman was that a decision was made that because she needed dialysis, and there wasn't a dialysis place then in town, she would be transferred back to living in the nearest state institution in a city where there was a dialysis unit. Well, this was, uh, was just unbelievable. This woman had gotten out of a lifetime of state institutions. Was she going to be live? Was this her home? Did she have friends? Or was she going to just be transferred back to the state institution? And the state agency insisted, and when the staff member closest to her objected, she was told by the administration of the agency that her advocacy was getting in the way of her job performance, and if it persisted, it was going to show up in her next performance evaluation. And this woman, Joni, was sent back to the state institution where she lived on a ward, went and had dialysis, and died there. I have in my office a picture of her grave. She was buried on the grounds of the state institution with a little plastic marker, and they spelled her name wrong. So after all of those years in the state institution, finally getting it out, living in a real town with friends, with her own apartment with someone, when something went wrong, she went right back, and nobody was able to do anything about it. I had thought that she was now truly a member of a community. But when push came to shove and you really hit the critical incident, then you were able to tell ultimately whether she was a member of a community or a client of a system. And she turned out to be a client of a system. many reasons why the group home movement, which began as a liberation from institutions, ended in institutionalization itself. One prominent one was the step-by-step -step expansion of government regulation, each new rule plausible in itself, 
but forming altogether a virtual straitjacket. Populist critiques of bureaucracy see a trend of this kind as simply in the nature of government. David Schwartz is not so sure. He thinks that this stifling of creative action grew out of something more subtle and complex. The point of view generally of provider organizations is that things are going along all right and then what happens is that state regulations are increased and then this forces them to ossify themselves more and more and that insurance concerns force this as well and that they are passive recipients of these uh, these trends then I started working in government and I started noticing a very funny thing which was I didn't think that the inherent tendency of government to want to regulate explained this. In other words, if it's given that any bureaucracy wants to, wants to expand its control, you know, that government is kind of like the eggplant that ate Chicago, you know, or a big <laughs> loaf of bread dough rising on the kitchen counter. You know, it's going to keep getting bigger. There's going to be people who are going to issue another regulation where there is a little hole in the place. And you'd say, well, this is, must be at the root of it. But one of the things that I realized was that actually this enlargement tends to proceed at a certain speed. And that the increase in regulation was proceeding much faster than the inherent speed of government to enlarge its domain. And in fact, where the impetus for enlargement of regulations were coming were from advocacy organizations who wanted to protect people. Now that was a strange realization to me because advocacy is tremendously important. You know, the original organization of parents groups to try to get something better for their children was the thing that was at the whole root of being able to start such good things as group homes instead of institutions. But I started to realize that what will happen is, for instance, let us say that there is a crisis that occurs in a group home. Someone isn't adequately supervised and they're taking a shower and the water gets too hot and they get burned. It's a real serious problem and it's, it has happened. It may be that then an advocacy organization will say to the state, you have to do something about this. People are unsafe in the houses. Your system is unsafe for these people. And that then the government will do the only thing it knows how to do, create another regulation. So that it seemed to me that well-meaning advocacy organizations who are focused on protection of individual rights, which is really important, then pushing on government, good government people who want to do their job, who then extend regulation, result in a situation in which the system is increasingly ossified. And all parties, the advocates, the government, and the provider organizations, all go around in this continual spiraling dance to improve things, the result of which is a tighter and tighter and more ossified kind of situation. The rigidifying effect of this regulatory spiral is reinforced, according to David Schwartz, by economic pressures, which increase as the system grows more complex. 
insurance requirements push considerations of risk and liability into the foreground. Union agreements create additional constraints. Eventually, what David Schwartz calls a culture of mistrust is created. Underlying this culture, he says, is a set of powerful and often unconscious beliefs. The first of these concerns the perfectibility of systems. It's now clear that it is a belief that if something happens, someone is at fault. A belief that you can live free from harm. In other words, you can avoid pain, suffering, and death. That if you fall into the swimming pool and drown, that it's somebody's fault. And that all bad things can be prevented with a sufficient body of law and regulation. That's one. I think another thing has to do with the, with the question of individual rights. And individual rights is something that's very important. But again, if one takes this question of one's individual right to be free from harm or to grow or to whatever it is, as opposed to the community right, it also brings in another question. You know, there have been, at least in this country, long-standing problems for people with disabilities, particularly those who use wheelchairs, to be able to get good service on airplanes. They often were really discriminated against. So pressure was brought on the Federal Aviation Administration to be able to get the airlines to be more responsive. This is, I think, an ideal example of good voluntary association work to bring pressure on government, to bring pressure on an industry to make sure that people are treated decently. When these regulations came out in draft, an association that represented people who were blind really objected to it. And they objected to the provision that had to do with sitting in an emergency exit row the regulations said, and now you can see it on the backs of seats, you know, when you take a flight in the United States. What the regulation said was basically, if you wanted to sit in an emergency exit row, you had to be capable of following, I believe it was, auditory and visual signals, you know, so that the cabin attendants could say to you, do such and such, so that you could get the door open so everyone could escape. And so, People with certain types of disabilities, so implied the regulations, were not to sit in those exit rows because, let's say you were blind, you might not be able to see the cabin attendant signaling to you in an emergency what needed to be done. And you had a responsibility there to help get people out. One of the blind advocacy associations objected to this just stridently, saying, you see, this shows that it's considered that our lives are less valued than the lives of everybody else in the plane. I have as equal a right to be able to escape from that plane. Now, I thought this captured this whole question of individual rights just beautifully, because if you look at everybody on a plane, here we are all on a plane, are we a bunch of individual citizens who all have our individual rights? Or, if we get into an emergency, are we some kind of a temporary community in which we depend on each other to be able to get each other out of this scrape? If you take the individual rights thing to its logical extent, 
then the argument of this association is absolutely right. It's every person for themselves and everybody should have an equal right to be nearest the exit and you should probably do it by lottery to be fair. I asked some friends of mine who use wheelchairs where they would like to be seated. And a couple of these friends said, well, actually, where I would like to be seated is the next row to the exit row. And in the exit row, I would like them to seat some young athletes who could get that door open and give me a hand to get out. And it seems to me these show a com two completely different ways of looking at things. So one of the current myths I think that we live under is that individual rights are not only important, but they are everything, essentially. So I think these two things are really, uh, really important. And the third thing that goes along with it is this belief that the proper response, that the obvious response to the situation of someone who needs some kind of help is to erect a system to be able to help them. You know, we're sitting here two blocks away from the Susquehanna River. And you may have seen that across the river there is, uh, there's a bridge. Now down here on the corner, I have a friend whose office is right off the end of the bridge. And one day, he was on the telephone where he noticed a woman standing out on the bridge. And as he realized, he hung up the telephone and went over to the window and he looked and he realized that this was a woman who was about to jump off the bridge into the water. He just thought to myself, oh my God, well, you know, what am I going to do? And he turned around and he grabbed his telephone and he started to dial 911, which is the emergency number to bring the ambulance and the crisis intervention team to rescue this woman who was about to commit suicide on the bridge. Now he told me that while he was in the process of doing this, and this happened, it takes much longer to tell than it took to happen, he noticed the city bus coming along the street. And it turned right, as it, usually, as it always does, 30 times a day, and started to go over the bridge. And as it started to get abreast of where this woman was, he noticed that the bus started to slow down. And it started to slow down, and as it got right abreast of where the woman was, the bus suddenly stopped, the accordion door in the front of it flew open, the driver's arm shot out of the door, and he grabbed the woman and yanked her back into the bus. And my friend stood there with the phone in his hand, just, he didn't know what to think. Then he hung up the phone. And he, being a reflective person, he sat down and he thought to himself, you know, it's funny. I saw this woman on the bridge and my immediate response was to call 911 and call into action that complex human service system which deals with people about to jump off the bridge. And of course, there would have been a long complex one. There would have been the ambulance and then the crisis intervention team and then referral to the local psychiatric unit and then if longer-term treatment was required, you know, there would have been maybe 15 steps in this. But what didn't occur to me was what occurred to the bus driver. The bus driver didn't do any of those things. 
he made a personal action based on, I would say, on, on a cultural kind of tradition of helping someone. And my friend, when he was sitting there, said to himself, why didn't I run down the stairs and go grab that woman? Why did I dial 911? And it seems to me that is this question of how pervasive our belief is that the response of a system is the only response to the situation of a person who we call in need. But in fact, there are others. And there, this is a really relatively recent one, and there have been others. So it seems to me if you take these things and you put them together, you end up with a current unconscious, what Illich calls certainties, which are underneath our current situation. The effect of these certainties, David Schwartz believes, was a rapid domestication of the wild possibilities he had sensed at the beginning of the movement to establish community services. The institution, it turned out, was not just the dismal asylum on the hill. It was a state of mind that could replicate itself just as easily in group homes tucked unobtrusively away on ordinary streets. Those of us who were developing them saw these as absolutely a completely new thing from institutions. And I have concluded that really what happened was that the community service movement grew from the same conceptual roots as the institutional system. It looked like it was a completely new tree, but it actually wasn't. It was much, much better, but it actually still came out of the same idea, and really John McKnight, I think, has been most succinct and eloquent about this when he says that that idea is the idea that you can make a system that will care. If you look back at the really wonderfully beneficial early asylums, they are designed as machines to care. And actually you can see it very clearly because you can see it architecturally. The actual building itself is a healing instrument by the classification of people. And if you then take a staffing diagram, a staffing diagram works on the idea of interchangeable parts. In a staffing diagram, if you have a pharmacist three or a psychiatric social worker trainee one. It doesn't matter who that person is. If one person drops dead on the street, you hire another one and you put him in that spot. That's how you know it's a machine because it has these interchangeable parts. So I think that this was the idea behind building the 19th century asylums but it also got to be the idea that we had carried along with us, that I had carried along with me, without realizing it, that you could build a community service system, and it's the system that would care. And I've slowly begun to conclude that if you have that idea, you will emerge roughly in the same place, no matter where you start, and that actually the people who started the 19th century places were no less visionary or committed than the people who started the 1970s places. But over time, their wonderfully humanitarian places flipped and became the opposite. 
and actually, instead of the liberators of people, became the oppressors of people. Once David Schwartz had understood the impossibility of systems that care and rejected the idea that technique can overcome the human condition, he was ready to try another way, as Mark Gold had said. The path he would now follow is traced in a quotation from William James with which Schwartz begins his book, Crossing the River. I am done with great things and big things, James wrote, great institutions and big successes, and I am for those tiny, invisible, molecular moral forces that work from individual to individual, creeping through the crannies of the world like so many rootlets, or the capillary oozing of water, yet which, if you give them time, will rend the hardest monuments of man's pride. These molecular moral forces now became the center of David Schwartz's study as he tried to find safety and acceptance for people with disabilities outside institutions. And that's where the story resumes in the next program of this series. Tonight on Ideas, the first of six programs called Beyond Institutions by David Cayley. The series continues tomorrow night. Technical production by Lauren Tulk, production assistance by Liz Nodge and Gail Brownell. You can get a printed transcript of tonight's program or the entire six-part series by calling Radio Works at 1-800-363-1530. That's 1-800-363-1530. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Stay tuned for Between the Covers, episode 13 of Healthy, Wealthy and Dead by Suzanne North. That's following the 10 o'clock news. 